0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. You're listening to POP, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. In part two of this interview with Lewis Oberland, a keyboarder of the Jeremy Days, he talks about his life in Los Angeles and what that is given him. But first, here's Lewis on the first period of the Jeremy Days' success in Germany. The first single that you released was sort of, wasn't really a success, but the second single, which came out the year of the album, um, mm-hmm. Brand New Toy, was a, a very big success. It was played on MTV Europe. Um, you did feel like, an international band and as you said you didn't feel like uh, a band that you could identify instantly oh they come from germany you just felt like they were you were international in every right. way what at that point i presume that the relationships in the band were working well you were really on a high and you all must have felt this is really going somewhere can you describe to me how that feeling was at that period yeah.
1: Um it was you know the thing the moment we re- realized this is going well had much less to do with the chart entry and the success of brand new toy because we almost missed that one because we were <clears throat> while that happened in Germany we were so focused on the UK we started living there uh we didn't really get the whole success part in Germany. But what we felt was like, so now we can do this. We're planning the second album. It's also going to be with Clive and Alan again as producers. Um, That was the moment when we were like, we can do this forever and ever and ever. We're going to make 30 albums. And, you know, that was a, a total high. When you get to actually do what you want to do um the success in regards to you know chart entry and stuff like that 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 was a st- we had that we were in hafenklang studios in germany which was our studio that we rented at that point and we got the news you're on number position number 11 in the german single charts and you know we had champagne there and we drank some champagne and then like an hour after that it was like all right uh let's go back in the room and continue rehearsing. I mean, there wasn't, there was not, chart entries, you know, I don't know what they mean. I think they mean more to the people in the industry because it gives them material that they can work with. You know, you can name drop stuff. You can say, wow, they're in the charts. They're in position number 10, this, this, this. To a musician, it basically just gives you a little bit of a uh, this little bit of like, all right, okay. Now I don't have to have any awkward meetings with the A&R where they go, why don't you do more music like John Bon Jovi or something like that, you know?
0: But there must have been a point where also that you may have felt, okay, money is going to come in and this is going to, I'll be in safer territory. Do you know what I mean? I won't have to think about how am I going to pay the rent or how am I going to do this? It's life is going to get a lot easier. How, I, how I, did that happen or how was it?
1: I never had any money concerns as a 22 year old. Uh, Life was cheap at that point. I don't know how any of us did it, but if you think back about your life, maybe when you're 20, 22, you don't really worry too much about money. Yes, you kind of have to, but you always scrape by somehow. So, I don't know. We never thought about the money aspect of things. We would get our advances from the record company and the publishing companies, and then we would live on that. Our manager took care of, you know, oh yeah, you you five guys are gonna stay in that house in Islington now for the next year and a half. And we're like, all right, cool, awesome, awesome house, old Victorian thing, nothing fancy, nothing. You know, we didn't have fancy stuff. We were never into fancy stuff, be it cars or or drugs, or any of that shit. Like, we were a very humble, non-rock and roll band, so to speak. <clears throat> Highly boring to some extent. Even our tour manager, Michael Dever, he probably, at that point, he wanted to spoil us and, and make us like real rock band. He was He gave up after a month or so.
0: <laughs> so how was that experience in London? And how do you think that sort of also added to a change in your perspective because you you know you've you've lived in so many places and you've moved yeah. around so much i just wondered if what what influence london gave you
1: london london in 88 89 90 was spectacular i will say that i think that was definitely a life changing experience for me and the lads as well or the guys as i would i should say over here um, but it was number one you're in the center of pop music you know the 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 i mean whatever was happening was happening in london and the club scene uh started to come out again out of a a slumber of sorts and went into the the house and dance scene so it was the birth of it was the second summer of love um so stone roses you know the whole cumbrian whatever concoction plus house music you know acid house started becoming a big thing loops incorporating loops drum loops into rock music um the wag club in soho was a center you know that we would hang out with i think one of the co-owners or he was one of the co-owners chris sullivan he directed the video to are you inventive um you know and he was a, this quirky personality and and you know, we were we were Parnini Cherry, you know, East Coast Studios, all of those Matt Johnson, all of that became part of our life all of a sudden. You know, and we thought that is spectacular. So that is something that is was so much more exciting than here's another twenty grand that you guys can live off for the next two months. You know, that, that completely. Un- uncorrelated, like being in London and having that experience and access to the music and the vibe and pop culture was spectacular. And, you know, just, I don't know, the whole thing, the style council-ish, like you hang out at, you know, a cafe, you get a haircut afterwards. And it's, it's, it was just a, 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 a time that I get very nostalgic about. It was definitely a once in a lifetime kind of thing, I would say.
0: You mentioned Chris Sullivan, of course, he had that brilliant band, Blue Rondo a la Turk, which was yeah, yeah. one of, one of uh, my favorite records. <laughs> I just want to say that. <laughs> the, uh, um, this success of the band allowed the band to continue for quite a few years and over, um, I think it was five albums. They were progressively, or you know, towards the end, less successful, let's say. <laughs> How did then the relationships between the band members change and were you still as enthusiastic at the end of that period as you were at the beginning?
1: Well, that's a clear no. (laughs) I mean, uh, let's say the relationship deteriorated because we were five very strong musical minds. And that was a great concoction for the first album and the second album. Uh, under the guidance of Clive and Allen, and also the novelty of it and our ways of um, still coming from the same background and going into the similar direction that worked for the first two albums. Album three, four, five became very frazzled. I mean, we had so many different inputs. It started going from, all right, we're here in the center and this is what we can all agree on, to well, I'm over here, I wanna do like, I was, for example, into dance music. I was, I, I got hooked on house and, and like, I was all about electronica and house. And then you had someone like Dirk or Yearn who were all about, you know, acoustic music on the far end. So that created so much tension. Also another thing, as you start forming your personality in your early twenties, mid twenties, it became about ego. Something that was not really there in the first on the first two albums, but from there on it became like, whose songs are we gonna put on this album? So we had three main songwriters: Dirk, Christoph, and me. And Yern sometimes would write a song, and Steve also sometimes would write a song. But the three songwriters of us, it became very much of a of a struggle. And it, the the worst moments were like when we were in a rehearsal room and writing a new song, or uh, uh, presenting a new song, and then someone would say, oh, this just sounds like modern talking. And with that, that song was dead. So you couldn't work. And, and though, there were very harsh moments amongst ourselves um, during production times. The tours, the things that kept us alive spiritually on a mental space were the tours. Because touring and the support of the fans and the joy that the fans uh, experienced during our shows and the joy that we had, we, I think one of the biggest compliments I ever heard a journalist say at some point to us in person was, you guys, your shows remind me of a modern day Pink Floyd extravaganza. And at that point, I didn't quite know what he meant, but then I understood it was a very celebratory freeform exploration of a live concert. It wasn't like, all right, here are our 12 songs. We're gonna play them. We jammed, uh, I mean, liter- not like stupid blues jam or something like that. We jammed our songs. We segued a song like Clouds of Maine, one of our albums, into uh, Silly Love Songs by The Wings, And it was impromptu like out of nowhere. And so I think our live performances were the things that kept us sane and uh, from jumping each other's throats, which would happen in the studio. Um, But
0: but when the band fell apart, there must've been, um, I mean, okay, a band and having, you know, being with people so closely is a relationship and any relationship, when it breaks up is difficult for any of the parties within the relationship to deal with. How was it after the band split? How was that period for you? Because I imagine it was quite a dark period as well for everyone.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, let me think. I mean, there was definitely, well, first you have to remember that I became a father in 1989 to my daughter, Polo, right? So age 22, 23, I was a father. I became a father. I turned into a little family with my son, Ruben, two years later, um, three years later. And each of, and every one of us, you know, Dirk became a father, Joran became a father. So we became individuals outside of the band. So by the time, by 1995, 96, um, we had to deal with real life. <laughs> so the hardship of the breakup, um, which wasn't actually, we never said, let's call, let's call it quits. We just said, hey, guys, let's just take a break. That was, that was kind of what we went. So, so under that light, it seemed like, oh, thank God. Oh, man, we so deserve a break. Now we can take care of real life. We can take care of our personal <clears throat> Preferences musically. So everyone went into the type of music they wanted to do, the type of stuff they wanted to produce or work with others, collaborations, and so on and so on. Um, it was not dark. Um, maybe subconsciously, I don't know, I didn't do that therapy session, but maybe there was a disappointment in the guys. You know, that, that we couldn't, we've pulled through almost 10 years through all sorts of, you know, challenging scenarios. And then that last bit, <clears throat> when we could have continued, we couldn't pull through anymore. Maybe I mean, there was a disappointment.
0: I know you kept writing and everything, but the, the being in a band and doing what you were doing is a creative output and when you're having that creative output and that output then is essentially taken away or the the main part of that output then and i know that you you had a family and i understand that part of it as well because that's going to keep you busy and it's something that you love and that you want to be around and you want to see your kids grow up but on the other side there is this i would assume and i've had this in a period of my life this emptiness where you're feeling i need something to fulfill me uh, within creatively as well. So was that a period where you were able to think and start developing ideas uh, for your future? Because you made a a big change in your life yet yet again. It took a while, but there was another big change in your life.
1: Well, you know, there was definitely, I think, again, the relief of not fighting over elements in creativity, uh, I think prevailed and was the dominant force after the breakup. So the fact that I knew if ever I were to sit at the guitar or or at the piano, that I wouldn't have to fight with anyone about what I'm doing, I think that was a relief. And so my continuation with becoming a music producer and working with other people, was filled by just a new approach. Oh, different people, we don't argue, we come to good results. So it was not that dark or that frustrating. And creativity at that point was also something that I had already learned from doing that I'd never had to worry about. It wasn't something like I knew, I might have a writer's block at some point, but I just have to let, to sit through it and eventually, it'll start bubbling up again, and I b- will be able to write. So, <clears throat> it wasn't it wasn't that bad, to be honest. And I think everyone in the band felt the same way. I think there was a bigger. I think the relief was almost bigger than the pain. I can't speak for everyone, but um, you know, everyone did actually really well continuing afterwards.
0: So, when did the former? communist boy <laughs> decide to go to the center of the capitalist world <laughs> i mean i love uh, america and, that, and that's it. it's obviously meant as a joke but you know <laughs>
1: I, I get it um it, oh god it was it was a strange thing because it was not a conscious decision at first i basically like at, so 10 years after the band split up that was the time when i was i felt Hamburg, as a city, had been sucked dry, with sucked dry with, with all the creatives fleeing to Berlin. So Hamburg became a culturally very void city. Um, and I had just moved to Berlin in two thousand four, <clears throat> trying to sort of see what Berlin is like. And um, and I was like, oh god, it's the same shit show, just you know slightly different paint, but it's very similar. It's still Hamburg, still Germany. Uh, and I said, I need a vacation. I need to get out for a while. So I went to Los Angeles for two weeks, three weeks, actually. And I arrived here cause I'd never been to Los Angeles. I mean, that's the thing. So, you know, I've, I've lived in quite a few places, but I have not been to Los Angeles. So I went here and it was just interesting because after three weeks, I realized I haven't seen shit over here in three, three weeks in Los Angeles is nothing. And, um, so I extended and I stayed here for three months. Well, in those three months, mm, I just fell in love with the city and its people. I loved, you know, the friendliness. I mean, uh, all the things that I'm gonna say now sound cliché. The friendliness of it, the vastness of the space, uh, the the weather. Um, I met amazing people Um, I met Herb Alpert during that time Herb Alpert became you know a a dear friend of mine and you know someone I look up to substantially Um, so I don't know the magic just started to unfold because I wanted to see the magic Um, it's so funny looking back now you know 17 years later where I'm like, oh my God, you are really a a creator of your own space, which harks back to the escapism as a little boy growing up. Uh, I seem to really always create my own spaces. If something doesn't work, something doesn't work for me, I, I create or create a new space. So back also to, I guess, I just wasn't made for these times. I still, to this day, don't really know where I want to be.
0: Los Angeles is not an easy city. I know you said, you know, the way you described it and everything, it was, it's almost landing somewhere, <laughs> which, you know, is, uh, you love the open spaces of Los Angeles and, and you made friends very quickly and all this sort of stuff. But Los Angeles can be a place where people get lost and they go there. A lot of people go there. I don't know what your original vision of going there was. It was a holiday, I know, so it's different. But a lot of people go there because they dream of this golden career and they're going to be discovered and they're going to make it. Then they, A lot of those people get lost and they end up being killed in a way creatively uh, and emotionally by that city um oh, absolutely. so how how have you sort of circumvented all that
1: uh i think you know you're absolutely right by the way in that observation i can say that now um i think my advantage was that i did not come here with any plan or any golden dream of sorts there was really none i mean friends always happen I mean, did you want because i couldn't foresee what i was going to do over here i literally just wanted to live here that's it live not 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 work or become something or someone i just wanted to live here i wanted to take in the warm climate and that's pretty much it and nice and open friendly people that's all i wanted the fact that i then transitioned into the different careers that i did i mean becoming an actor was the furthest away from, from what I could have ever imagined of becoming, but I just stumbled into it. I really stumbled into acting from that, into photography, into DJing, same thing, DJing. I mean, I, I, I even though I love dance music, but I never wanted to DJ, you know, so, but any of that, it really just unraveled. It, it, it shaped itself out. It went, it came by me going, why don't i try this and i tried it and i did it and i was good at it and it was fun that's all that mattered to me
0: you're listening to pop the history makers with me steve blame
1: la from my experience is one of the loneliest cities in the world and Prior to that, I thought London can be that at times. (laughs) But um, no, LA is a real challenge because it doesn't have the social cultural meeting places of sorts. They don't exist. They just don't exist. Um, And and therefore people get very lonely here. And the only thing where you can actually socialize is in in business environments. And business environment socializing is can basically be broken down to to pitching everyone pitches the other person what they're doing what they're on to hoping for opportunities because that's what la used to be you know uh la is also of course majorly transitioning from from an entertainment city and has transitioned into a fintech town finance technology so uh, it, it, it's changing i can't really say for the better or the worse. I don't know, it, it is just changing like, like many cities do. But I mean, this is a fast paced change over here.
0: I mean, I've been to LA quite a few times and I remember one time when my career was dead and uh, at a very low ebb and I went to visit a friend in LA and we went to these sort of 2 hour parties that they have in the evening you get a you get an in time and an out time which i'd never heard of before so you turn up at 7 but you got to leave by 9 because it's yeah. only about who you are and i remember being at this party And it started off people asking you, what do you do? And I said, actually, I'm unemployed at the moment. You know, I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't actually unemployed, but I just said, I'm unemployed at the moment. I emptied the room. You know, you emptied the room immediately. So this friend of mine who lives there said, no, 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 don't say that. Say that you're a presenter on MTV. And that had long ended. So the next thing was like, oh, I'm a presenter on MTV. The room (laughs) filled up. You know, (laughs) it was the most bizarre experience ever because your status is only related to what you can give the person you are talking to. And that absolutely. I found very tough to deal with because it, it sort of lacked humanity.
1: Well, you know, it's, uh, it's very difficult to say something to that. I would absolutely agree in that observation. And I learned it the hard way myself, emptying the room by just, you know, being honest and saying, I've got nothing going on right now. Oh, okay. Bye. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't want to talk to you. Why would I talk to you? You've got nothing going on. Of course, it's it it robs you of your humanity because you know, now as we talk and you go, Oh, I wanted to talk to you because you have such an interesting life. No one gives a fuck about your interesting life if it's not written in a script, if it's not, you know, based on a true story. <laughs> but <clears throat> but um no, but I I I I watched all of this, and what I've come to realize is it's the confusion that Europeans feel over here, especially in LA, thinking that parties are social gatherings. They are not. They're extended pitching places. So in that regard, you have to be very aware of those two hours. That's like your pitch time. This is the time when you can fast forward and jump all the hoops that in Europe, you can't even jump. You can't, you can't go from here to here at a party in Europe. But over here, you can, you meet the right person or you offer the right part that someone else needs. Boom. So it's just a very efficient, uh, business setting masked as a social hanging out.
0: I mean, you mentioned DJing, you mentioned photography, and you mentioned um, acting. Now, music, I can see in acting because there's a rhythm to words. There's a rhythm to how you uh, bring something across on film. Um, DJing, obviously, I don't need to explain that one in any sense. (laughs) Photography, where is the music in photography? Is, Is there some relation to how you perceive photography in musical terms?
1: Well, you know, I started my photography based on empowering women, actually. So I started, I think, in around 2012. That was kind of like pre the Instagram and social media craze, but I could already get a sense of what was going to come. And so my photography is very simple, uh, non frills, no big makeup styling. Da, da, da. But relatability, uh, relatability to music comes in. You know the term composition. You compose a frame. I didn't make elaborate shoots with props or anything like that. All I did was find the person's angles and and moments that look good. I was on a mission to make a person look good, especially women without the trickery, merely by creating a mood that was pleasant and by finding the right angles because photography is a very selective <clears throat> craft. And that's, that's where you can actually re- relate it to music. I can, you can give me a guitar and I can play horrible stuff on that guitar, Or you give me a guitar and I play beautiful stuff on it. And it's the same with photography. You can take a shit picture of the most beautiful person in the world, or you take a spectacular picture. So the choice matters. And that's why I truly enjoyed doing photography. It had also a similar element of meditation. You go into a zone and from there you start expanding and let Whatever comes through you speak. So that would mean with my subjects, I would sometimes look through the lens and see that woman as a 10 year old, as a 30 year old, I would see her in the future as a 50 and 70 year old. And that's basically what my my brain gave me. You know what, what sort of, what sort of came through me, and it, it harks back to see my grandmother, my mother, you know, all of those people, my daughter, everyone coming into that, culminating in that person that I am shooting. Um, so I think selective approaches in general is a, a red thread in creative processes. Especially in the overwhelm that we have. I mean, you must know that as a writer, and you know, like, w- where do you start? What do you focus on? You could, we could, I mean, even this conversation, I mean, we're, I still feel we're just touching the, the surface of any of those subreddits, <laughs> you know, that we can divulge in. So, yeah.
0: You're listening to POP, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. You talked earlier about when you moved to Berlin in 2004, but in 2003, you played with the guys in den FC St. Pauli, which was uh, a a benefit for FC St. Pauli. When you were in LA and all that time, had you had any contact with the guys, or had you basically forgotten them, as it were? I don't mean, you know, in a negative sense, yeah, but no, in a no. sense they were in your past.
1: I mean, we really had little to no contact. Um, I, uh, I don't recall if I ever had a conversation with yearn or something. Maybe, you know, except for that one show, that the concert there in 2003, that was a one-off and, but no, there was no content. And there was also no, no need or want to, to connect. I mean, my life since I moved over here has been wonderfully busy and actually non-music related. I stopped making music in 2005 consciously. That was a conscious decision. Um, I didn't miss the guys and of course, once we start getting together again, you realize, oh, my God, there's so much history. There's so much of a connection and so much, you know, love, actual love amongst us. We care for each other and about but, each other.
0: But where did the contact come from? Who, who connected you again? And what was your initial feeling of this idea to actually play together again live?
1: It was, it was very banal almost. It was like, it was a former booker, a booking agency that used to book our shows. They said, hey guys, um, hey, so here's a crazy idea. We're getting some calls from people asking about the 30 year anniversary of your album. And, you know, uh, don't you just want to do a reunion show or something? Or not a reunion, just a, just an anniversary show. And Dirk, you know, forward that email to all of us and for some inexplicable reason because we've been inquired by Tim Renner, for example prior previously whether we would do you know a show and we're like nah no why why would it be but all of a sudden i think this 30 year thing the anniversary um and it caught us kind of like in a good space and we decided to just be like yeah, we can do that. We can do just one show. Why shouldn't we? Could be fun. And, and yeah, hence we, we did that. And of course, there's also the fear. I will be honest. I remember my first thought was, oh man, I don't want to be like one of those revival bands. You know, you, you go, you, you play a show and then it used to be, you know, a thousand people that would come to your show and all of a sudden it's 50 people and it's a very sad moment. It would be, it could be a very sad moment. Of course, that also is in there, you know, where you're like, oh, I don't wanna go through that. But we were just, we're just, let's just do it. What the fuck, let's see what happens. And you know, it turned out amazing. It was a sold out show at the docks in Hamburg. And the most beautiful thing about that evening, apart from seeing everyone and being emotional and happy and joyous, was the fact that there was no purpose to the show apart from celebrating. There was no promoting. I remember when we as a band, when every show that we played always had the the tenor of, we need to show the world that we are the best. (laughs) We need to convince the people. The last journalist who might write for NME he needs to know that we are the shit. <laughs> so there was none of that during that show. It was pure bliss from the moment walking on stage, opening chords to the last moment, leaving it and just being like, that was the best show of our lives. Just for that.
0: What's brilliant about this story, it has then on top, you know, the cherry on top, is this fairy tale ending with beauty and broken with a with an album that goes into the german charts and you know so many years after your first success and completely unexpected uh for all the members of the band i'm i'm sure i can't imagine anyone would ever sort of expect that where does that put you in your life now because you you know it's almost like you develop this other life you have this life in la that you really love you you have all these facets to your life that you enjoy and then suddenly the thing that you originally started out to do has come true again so where does that put you in your life
1: yeah that's that's a funny one man that's a funny one i would say uh it's hard to place because on one hand, it is some sort of a past life. Like it's, it's you know, 20 years ago, that's, that's kind of where, where all of that sits. So revisiting this and man, we were so surprised. We've never gotten this much and such good press. Like all of our albums were hated. That's that's what we felt like. Or there was a lot of critique, you know, about us being the way we were and the music, and uh, it's just mainstream, blah blah blah, whatever. And 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 now we've had um, amazing press and wonderful, you know, s- statements from from writers and journalists, etc. So it's kind of like strange almost to be like, wait, what is this? The power of nostalgia, or in our own uh, analysis, we've become much more chill. So therefore, so hence the 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 result, the music becomes has has become more homogenous again. You know, be, we became very frazzled in the course of the creation of our albums over time, and and now we're sort of like very it's for, very homogenous. It's it's a round, well-rounded, good album. You know, so it puts me in a strange place for several reasons. One, of course, geographically, uh, I have to, I've, I've been looking at three different flights this year, you know, three different long trips to Germany for all the stuff that we need to do. We will be playing, oh my God, can I say that already? I don't even know whether I can say that. A famous German institution on TV, which is kind of like the Nighting the nighting of our band, which is amazing. Um, we're gonna play that. The police played that as well in 1977. So <laughs> it's nice how it loops back in my mind to you know, watching a band that I loved on that TV thing and then performing it ourselves this fall. Um, I think it's
0: wonderful. This full circle idea is a very beautiful idea. What's interesting yeah. to me is how that success could play into your career uh, as an actor, whether that success could translate into LA, um, further success in LA and bigger success in terms of acting in LA, or does LA care?
1: You know, so A, I am not an actor. I just happen to enjoy filming. And acting. I, I love it. It's a great exercise. It's 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 relaxing to me. I enjoy the camaraderie on the on a whole crew, on a whole team, et cetera, et cetera. I love good visionary directors and writers. That shit turns me on like nothing else. But I love the reduced being as an actor that you get to be. It's not as all-consuming as being a musician, to be honest. Um, and I'm not onto an acting career like that, that is the thing. Like, I mean, I appreciate what you say, you know, like maybe it will feed into that, but I am, I have removed myself from career approaches of sorts. So currently, for example, the the main thing I'm doing is I'm working in finance and DeFi, so crypto. That's, that's where my head is now these days. The creative outlet is the cherry on top of everything, whatever it is. If I get asked to DJ, if I get asked to participate in a film or in something, that's just, oh my God, thank you universe, amazing. Um, I think I'm truly not made for these times because career thinking was never my thing. And continues to not be my thing. So if the Jeremy days continue to have the success that we currently have or not, I don't really care for. Don't get me wrong, this is not being ungrateful. It's more like how amazing to have done what we have done, not only back in the 80s and 90s, but also with this new album, bringing all these fans among themselves together again, revisiting their youth and having a great time for ourselves. That already is enough. I am actually in the light of that rather humble. Uh, What matters to me these days is a little bit continuing to find a sense of purpose. That's what I find is one of the biggest challenges in aging. I'm, I'm turning 56 this year, right? And there has been a distinct difference to me 10 years ago and now where I realize I have to be able to wake up every morning and find a purpose to get up. And that doesn't matter whether I'm in a depressive phase or whether I'm in a positive phase, I have to find the sense of purpose. And I think that is one of the challenges of aging and music defeats that. Music, as a listener and a creator, defeats aging because it gives you something highly satisfying to get your head into.
0: Well, I will finally say that that sense of purpose, as a 63-year-old, <laughs> I have definitely found my sense of purpose, which is as a writer, because it fulfills me totally to write, whether it will be successful or not. And that is a wonderful thing. So don't worry about ageing. Uh-huh. <laughs> you are not going to age badly in any case, because you've always been a very good looking man. And Lewis, thank you for your, uh, those insights into your own life and uh, really telling us this uh, wonderful journey and um, this fairy tale end, which isn't the end. So Uh I wish you well in the future, and thanks again.
1: Thank you so much, Steve. What a lovely interview. Thank you so much. You're amazing. You're an amazing person. Thank you.
0: And that's it for this podcast on Lewis Oberlander, keyboardist of the Jeremy days. I'll be back each Monday with a new interview. See you soon.